A while ago, I had a great talk with Victor Savkin about Angular and his book, Angular 2 Router, The Complete Authoritative Reference. I'd just like to mention before the podcast starts that since our interview, Victor has left his post at Google to become a co-founder of Narwhal Technologies, where he and his co-founder, Jeff Cross, will work more closely with enterprise teams working on Angular 2 applications. Narwhal is spelled N-R-W-L for short, and you can find more information at nrwl.io, where they mention that the Narwhal team will remain active contributors on the Angular core team and will remain strategic partners with the Angular team at Google. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Victor Sapkin. Victor works at Google and is an Angular core team member and the main contributor to the Angular router. He also has interest in functional programming and client-side applications. When he's not working on Angular, Victor enjoys playing around with eclectic programming tech, and he has a particular interest in fonts and keyboard layouts. Victor is the author of the LeanPub book, Angular 2 Router, The Complete Authoritative Reference. In his own words, the book goes far beyond a how-to-get-started guide and talks about the library in depth, the mental model, design constraints, and the subtleties of the API. Everything is covered. In this interview, we're going to talk about Victor's professional interests, Angular, his book, and his experience writing and publishing. You can read Victor's blog at vsapkin.com and follow him on Twitter at Victor Sapkin. So thank you, Victor, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you, Len. Thank you for having me. Um, as you may know from listening to a couple of our podcasts, I usually like to start interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so uh -huh. I was wondering if you could tell us how you first became interested in doing the kind of work you're doing now and how you came to work for Google on Angular. Sure. So I originally am from Russia, uh, from a city called Vladivostok. So I went to college there and I studied math there. So as a teenager, I was really interested in two things, programming and productivity. So I was playing with computers, like building games and small apps, as everyone does. When I was a teen, I guess around 15. So right before I went to college. At the same time, I was reading a lot about productivity, lots of books, articles, podcasts. And the reason why I was really interested in this, this topic of productivity is that I grew up in a small village near Vladivostok, and I went to a very mediocre school. So I thought if I apply myself and, you know, if I... Uh, like manage my time well, manage my time well, I will be able to perform well, you know, with like kids from better schools, from excellent schools. So in a year, I wrote my first professional app, which was a productivity tool, like the most convoluted and over-designed to-do list you can ever imagine. It didn't sell really well, you know, so it wasn't very successful. Uh, then I had my own startup, which failed super quickly. I went through a bunch of companies working as a programmer, doing lots of different things, like backend, front-end, middleware, and then I moved from Vladivostok to Toronto, Canada. And after a few years, I got this opportunity to work on Angular, to join the Angular team at, at Google. And Angular is an extremely successful open source project. Uh, I think over a million of developers right now are actively using it. And it's a framework uh, developers can use to build rich apps in, in JavaScript. So this opportunity was really exciting to me because I knew that I can sort of get back to what I liked as a teenager, which is making people more productive. But here, instead of uh, uh, helping them manage their time efficiently, I can help them building their apps more efficiently. So I jumped on this opportunity and moved to San Francisco, where I right now currently live and work on Angular. That's uh, so that's sorry. No, go ahead. Please continue. That's basically what I'm doing right now. So I'm trying to make devs more productive, trying to make their lives easier, less painful. And I do that by like making Angular. And um, can you... I've, I've looked into this space a little bit myself, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what your, your to-do list, what your, what your app was, was all about. 
Oh, the first one. Oh boy. Oh boy. So <laughs> I actually like like the space a lot. And the first app, I think I had a few core ideas. The first one is instead of having a single, like just a regular list, had different views to look at the list, you know, so you can have different perspectives per se. Yes? One would be like a tree-like structure where you can organize complex projects and complex ideas, like link connections between them. Then you can project that complex tree-like structure into a bunch of flat lists so you can actually execute it and like sort of check it off, you know, one by one. Uh, I also had an idea of so, so-called eating frogs, you know, doing unpleasant things. So you can, in the app, you could mark certain things as unpleasant. So the app will force you to do unpleasant things first, like in the morning. So you can, you know, the rest of your day is not as, you know, painful as the first, like, one or two hours when you did all the unpleasant things. Uh, sorry? Yeah, yeah I was going to say that's a really fascinating aspect of productivity. I was interviewing someone recently named um, Janelle Klein, mm-hmm. who part of her approach is um, measuring pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things she does in her analysis of it is to have people have developers describe like they just click one of three buttons you know about the uh-huh. type of work that they're doing and yeah she's done a lot of really interesting work on on that aspect of of how to analyze productivity and sort of yep. maybe change people's work practices yep so I, I it's actually one of my main interests even at the moment so i measure my productivity from morning until night and i schedule my work based on where during the day uh, it fits for example the first couple of hours in the morning i find i'm the most productive I mean, at, you know, after I woke up, have a cup of coffee, usually like four or five shots of coffee, you know, for three hours, I'm like a, like a machine. I can do a lot of coding. I can think through complex problems. And then the productivity goes down and I do more like mundane, simple routine tasks. You know, it's interesting if you like organize your work in this way, how much more you can accomplish having the same amount of time. And what was your first um, startup? The one you, the one you mentioned briefly. Okay. The startup was, uh, so I was a teenager, like a lonely guy, a little bit nerdy. I was lonely. So I, it was a startup for lonely people who want to talk to each other. It was called Let's Talk. Basically, the idea was that you go on a startup, uh, like you go to, to on a page and you type in something like, oh, I want to talk about this. You know, like, let's say I read Hemingway. I want to talk about this book a lot to someone who is around my age, you know, someone I can relate to, you know. And the app would match you with someone who is, you know, has this interest at the moment, you know. Either is active, like online right now, or was recently active with this interest. So hopefully you can connect within a day and you can sort of connect with a person and discuss the subject you deeply care about. Uh, it failed mostly because Russia is just crazy and super hard to get money, you know. <laughs> and I was very young too, so I, I didn't play my cards right, you know. I was going to ask, um, I know you're, you're in the United States now and you were in Canada for a while before that, but um, what's, yep. the, uh, what's the culture like around startups in Russia? Is it something that is part of the popular awareness or is it niche or is it something that's growing i think it's very niche even at the moment uh a few companies appear and disappear from time to time but at no point you can get money as easily as you can get here i think here if you have a good idea and have a bunch of engineers who are like talented most likely you can get some amount of money to work let's say for half a year you know there it's almost impossible you need to have friends or very personal connections you know with someone who has money uh, and I think it's a little bit frowned upon, you know. In general, Russians don't take risks as much as, let's say, Americans or Canadians. So it's not part of the culture. It's, uh, Russians value safety a little bit more. And as a result, startups are not as, you know, uh, uh, not as common, I guess. And is there, a, I guess, what you might call it a STEM culture for, for um, people who are sort of thinking about what to do for, say, university studies in Russia? Is there 
a, a culture of sort of like approving of people who move into science, technology, medicine, and things like that, as opposed to other types of. I know it's a very broad generalization that I'm asking you to make, but is 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 there, for example, if you go into if you if you're interested in computers, mm -hmm. is there a cultural pull towards certain types of things rather than other things, especially given there isn't maybe so much of a startup culture there? Um, I, I don't think in general the IT culture or engineering culture is as com like as uh, dominant in Russia as it's here, especially in California. So there are obviously a lot of programmers who are talented and successful there too. Uh, but I don't think, at least I didn't feel I was part of the engineering culture, you know, at any point. I was just a programmer who managed to do some programming at a company I worked for, like a bunch of companies actually. Uh, but, you know, at no point I felt as connected to my uh, peers, peers in a broader sense, as I do, for example, here or I felt in Canada. And how did you make your way to Canada? Why, why Canada? Uh, I mean, in general, Canada has a very straightforward immigration system. That's part of it, you know, so you can fill in a form. There is no lottery, you know, once you get enough points, you have good education and good experience, uh, you sort of, you know, very likely to get a PR, uh, PR card, which is basically like a green card, yes, in Canada. And I like Canada a lot. Uh, I, I'm a lot more left-wing, you know, in terms of my political views. So I think the way Canada functions and runs the country is a lot closer to me than, for example, the States, you know. So I still like, Canada is still my favorite country, you know. I just happen to be in California. And um, I have to ask, um, uh how was your first Canadian winter? Was it totally familiar? It, it, it was basically the same as the Russian winter. So, yeah. you know, I wasn't surprised at all. It actually felt good. You know, that, hey, it's about the same. You know, it's super cold. Your phone doesn't work outside because it's that, like, super cold. Uh, so, I don't know. I think there is an element of, you know, huh, I'm against the nature. You know, it's so cold. You know, the wind, you know, the snow. Uh, for a couple of days, it actually feels really good. Then you get tired of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and uh, so you eventually made your way to the West Coast. Did you did you apply to Google or did they approach you? Uh, Google approached me. So uh, I joined Google because they approached me. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, just very generally, what's what's it like working at Google? I'm sure there are people listening who've wor worked there themselves and yep. people who would have thought about it and would like to. Yep. Uh, I really like Google as, a, as an employer. I think it's a great company to work at. It's very comfortable. A lot of day-to-day -day stuff I had to take care of before, prior to joining Google. I don't have to worry about at Google at all. It's taken care of by someone else, you know. So I can focus on engineering and, you know, chatting with my coworkers and friends and whatnot. So I think it's a great company. If you want to do engineering and you don't want to bother with, like, you know, you want to delegate all this extra stuff to someone else, you know, uh, I think Google is a, is, a, is a good place. There are a lot of interesting projects. Uh, you know, food is free or whatnot. But, you know, I don't think the food is free is the main thing. It's, it's just an example of when something is taken care of, so you don't need to worry about it. So you can only worry about your project. Yeah, that sounds like a um, a fantastic environment. I mean, yep. for, a, for an employer to deliberately take away that stuff for the sort of psychological reasons yep, is, a, is, exactly. a, is a really interesting, interesting move. And I think something that's often misinterpreted especially by perhaps grumpy people from yep. generations who didn't enjoy what they see yep. as perks um, yep. um, but sometimes can't see as the uh, you know sort of hardcore productivity moves that they are yep yep I think it actually affects the productivity a lot even though sometimes I miss going to like restaurants previously when I lived in Toronto we would go to a restaurant for lunch or like a fancy coffee shop and here like well it's not 
It's still cool, but sometimes not exactly the same, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Slightly less hipster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, uh, so on the subject of Angular, um, for those, let, let's imagine not everyone who listens to um, uh, this podcast is in tech. Um, if yep. you were to explain to someone what Angular is, could please, you know, could you give it the two-minute or five-minute uh, description? Sure. I would say Angular is a set of tools and libraries you can use to build a client-side application like, let's say, Gmail or Inbox, like this kind of application, a rich application with a lot of interactivity. So you can build it uh, using Angular fairly efficiently. Like, I think it's probably one of the best tools if you want to get started and do something quickly, like within a few weeks. Uh, you can use Angular, and if you have some programming experience, most likely you'll succeed at building something that actually works. Uh, it gives you the sense of, I do it right now, in, in a day, something actually runs, and I can click around in the application functions, which is a very rewarding experience, especially for a lot of developers who are new to the industry, you know? They just started, and, you know, they want to feel this immediate feedback of that, I tried it, and it works, you know? So Angular provides that. So I think with Angular 2, the, the newest implementation of the framework, we try to keep that feel of, like, it just works, uh, but adapt it so it works for larger projects and larger teams. Because Angular 1 was known to work excellent for smaller projects, but sort of, you know, miss a few things here and there when you, uh, your project grows, you know, above, let's say, 50,000 lines, 100,000 lines, and you have, like, 20 developers working on it at the same time. Suddenly, there are a few things that were not designed sort of exactly right for that situation. And I think Angular 2 solves this problem a lot better. Yeah, you write about um, something called dead code elimination, which I gather yeah. is to, to help efficiency. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what dead code elimination yep. is. So the idea is that uh, if you are consuming a lot of JavaScript libraries, let's say you consume Angular itself and a lot of other components from different libraries, uh, if you don't use dead code elimination, what will happen is you have to ship all, the, all this code to the client, to the browser, for the application to, to run, to bootstrap. Uh, and it can be a lot of code. So if you're on mobile and you have a, 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 like a not a very good connection, it may take a lot of time just to deliver the code yes, and then to, to run it, actually to scan it, to parse it, you know, and whatnot. Uh, so that code elimination looks at your code and see which parts of your code cannot be reached in principle. So let's say it looks at a component or like a, at, at an ES6 module, which is the JavaScript module, and like this module is not used at all in your app. It happens to be a part of the same library, but we can statically deduce, you know, like analyze the code and statically decide that it's not used, so we can remove it from the production bundle, yes? So you, we can drastically reduce the size of your application so you can ship it quicker to the phone of, the, of your user. And is this something that's happening continuously, or is it something that you do periodically? I think it happens, uh, like it depends on your uh, sort of uh, dev setup. So, uh, it happens before you ship to production, essentially. Yes? Okay. So during development, you can still do it. So uh, for, for all sorts of reasons, maybe for performance analysis and whatnot. Uh, but before you ship to production, you run a special tool uh, that will uh, remove uh, code that we know for sure is not going to be used, you know, and will minify the rest of the code, you know, optimize it and whatnot, you know. So the deliver, deliverable is smaller and we can ship it quicker to, to, to your customers. Uh, could you explain also a little bit about um, what the what the router is that you work on? Um, cool, yeah, yeah. I, I can do that. Thank you. So rout router is the latest project I worked on. And I can talk a little bit about what routers do in general, because the word router is so generic, you know, it may mean a lot of things. So I think that uh, a big part of any application development right now is trying to manage state and manage uh, state transitions. And doing this is actually very hard 
especially on the web, because uh, on the web, we want to ensure that the state of your application, at least a substantial part of it, is reflected in the URL. So you can copy and paste stuff, the back button works and whatnot, you know. If you want to provide a good web experience, you know, the URL has to match the state of your application. Uh, this synchronization is non-trivial. In addition, we often want to split your application into multiple chunks, we call bundles, multiple bundles, so we can ship only the first bundle to your customer, it bootstrap, and then we can la load lazily the rest of your application. Yes? So the bootstrap uh, time, time to the first interaction is a lot quicker. So doing all of this transparently is, is actually like fairly hard. And that's what the router is doing. So using the router, you can uh, declaratively specify the states in which your application can be. You can manage state transitions, and the router will take care of synchronizing your transitions with the URL. So the URL will always match. And the router will load other bundles on demand in a transparent way. So you as an application developer don't need to worry about it too much. It sort of happens, you know. So while the user is navigating through your app, more and more code will be fetched from the server and, you know, different parts of your application will be bootstrapped. Yeah, and specifically you write about um, the concept of a route state. And I was yep. wondering if you could explain a little bit about, about that as well. Sure. So a route state is... Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's somewhat nuanced. You know, application state can include a lot of things. You, know, so you can, for example, have the state of your UI component. Something can be highlighted, something can be scrolled, you know, or, or whatnot. You know, like a particular button can be in a particular state. Uh, and uh, that's one part of the state. The other part is what's actually been shown. Yes, let's say if you go to an inbox or a mail app, what you can see is a particular message is being opened, you know. Or if you open contacts, you are chatting with a particular person, you know. What exactly you are typing in a transi transiently, what you're typing, it doesn't really matter, you know. But what matters is what message is open, who you're chatting with, you know. So that part of the state, persistent state, is what uh, I refer to as route state because it's captured in the URL. Yes, it's part of what router deals with. You should be able to copy it, paste it, and send it to your friend. And if friends open it, the friend should see the same message being open and the same uh, chat window or whatever, you know. Uh, being open, even though some details of where it's been scrolled to or whatnot, you know, what was selected is not represented, that's good enough, you know. And Angular 2 has a particular focus on mobile, if I'm not mistaken, that I, I yep. think I read somewhere, maybe it was on your blog, that, yep. you know, you, you should, you optimize for mobile first before, say, yep. a web application or a native yep. web app. Is that, and that's correct? I was wondering if you, you know, what the, I mean, it's probably pretty straightforward, but you know, what's the argument for designing something like this to be mobile first? So I think that uh, mobile puts a lot of constraints onto what you can do. Yes? The main constraint is, uh, first of all, like, okay, the main constraint is uh, it's hard to fetch large resources from the server because your connection is usually spotty. Yes? So as a result, things like tree shaking matter a, a lot or things like lazy loading, you know, when you can ship only like 20% of your app right away and it boots and you can interact with it on your phone already while we're getting more and more stuff from the server. Whereas on desktop right now, we have very powerful connections, you know, you can ship like megabytes, you know, within like like half a second, you know. So uh, I think the size of, of your app after all the manipulation is done, the size of your first chunk of your app we need to ship is what makes a lot of stuff mobile friendly. And the second part which makes it mobile friendly is the ability to work when there is no connection at all. That's when, it, like you're on a subway or whatever, you know? Uh, but the router doesn't deal with that. As other parts of Angular and other parts of the infrastructure take care of that. That's, a, that's really interesting and, and really um, powerful argument. Um, 
was there pushback from the community when this mobile first um, focus was first launched? Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think so. I think most people realize at this point that most consumer apps or consumer websites have to work on your phone. And so it happens it's much harder to make it uh, work on your phone very well, you know. Mm-hmm. So the experience, the good experience on your phone is a lot harder to achieve. So if you can do that, you know, then making it work on desktop is usually fairly straightforward. Okay, yeah, that, that reminds me about a story I heard about mm-hmm. an, another company near you um, that uh, would throttle um, uh-huh. like internet sort of speeds to its own uh, employees to give them the experience of what it was like, you know, accessing from a network in, in, a, yep. in a place with bad connections and how that, that was meant to sort of really drive a focus on efficiency of how mm-hmm. everything worked um, and yep. being, being yep. sympathetic to that experience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you uh, wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the future of Angular 2. Um, what can, is there anything you can tell us that people can be expecting to see in the short term? All right. So the future of Angular 2, so the first thing we are focused on right now at the moment is shipping final. So we are very close and hopefully within a few weeks we'll be able to ship the final version of Angular 2. Fantastic. At which point we will sort of freeze the API. The API will be stable uh, for at least half a year. We're going to, of course, make adjustments, fix bugs and whatnot, but you will be able to rely on the framework and build your apps knowing that nothing under you will change. Yes. So everything should be only better, yes, during this period. Like the framework should be faster. We are going to work on our compiler to make the deliverable smaller. We are going to like improve the router, for example, to handle certain use cases we do not handle right now very well. But overall, it will be stable. It will be a good platform on which you can build your applications. Fantastic. Thanks very much for, for that answer. That's great. Um, uh, you, were, you mentioned in the introduction to your book that yep. you're going to keep it up to date with future releases of Angular 2 and changes yep. to the router. And I was wondering if this is the reason or one of the reasons you chose to publish your book on LeanPub in the first place. Yep, uh, it's a good question. So there are actually, I think, three reasons why I, I, I picked LeanPub over a traditional publisher. And that was one of them. One of them is that I can, uh, because I work on open source, I got fond of the idea of publishing early and like publishing often. So getting something out there which is like 80, 90% ready, like almost ready, already can provide a lot of value to many people. And then you can get feedback from those people and improve it. It's, it's a good way to make your product and, or your book uh, a lot better. It probably won't work well for fiction, you know, I don't know. But it works great for tech books, you know. It's, it's just perfect for tech books. So that's one reason why I, I chose LeanPap. The other reason is uh, I read a lot of books that are published by LeanPap, and many of them had very... Not narrow, but you know they were very focused. You know they were about one thing. So you buy a book, and it's just about one topic. You know which you care about, because often if you buy a book from a traditional publisher, uh, like a, not a half, but maybe thirty percent of the book is a filler. You know, and I respect my readers' uh, time a lot. I want them to spend the less amount of time they can reading my book. You know, and extract everything they need. You know. Because I know I'm not Hemingway, you know. They, they're not reading it to enjoy the, you know, the language. You know? They need to extract value from my book. And if I publish Violin Pop, I can make the book as short as I want and just cover one subject, which is your router. I don't want to have some nonsense chapters about how to set up NPM or whatnot, you know. You can find it online already, in, like in other places. You know? probably already know, you know. That's why uh, I pick LeanPub. Oh, and the last reason is that as a programmer, I'm very happy with the tech side of things on LeanPub. I have my own GitHub repo, 
which I push my updates to, my friends and my coworkers can comment on those. We don't need to send each other any documents, you know. Uh, basically, the best practices I'm accustomed to as a programmer, I can use while working on my book, you know, which is version control, different tools, you know, those kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really that's really um, a fantastic point it's about filler. Um, uh, uh, one thing I think a lot of people who aren't so familiar with the publishing industry don't know is that um, you know a bookstore is basically uh, a physical competition for space um, and uh, for uh, visual space in particular. And so one of the reasons books can sometimes be so fat is mm -hmm. that they're they're squeezing out other books. Um, mm -hmm. from the bookshelf and they're displaying their spine or even their front if they, you know, if they pay for that privilege um, mm -hmm. or prominently. And so books sort of literally get bigger because the book itself is an advertisement prior to its being purchased. Mm -hmm. And it's, yep. it's, it's a sort of a weapon um, mm -hmm. against the other books. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, the process of publishing in progress like that. Um, how your, your book is currently marked to 95% complete, I think. Um, yep. I was wondering what percent complete was it in your mind when you first published it? I think it was about 80%. So I was planning to write, uh, uh, I guess, about 12 chapters, and I had about 10, and a few screenshots here and there were missing. And the examples were somewhat correct, but were not exactly right, you know. So I would say you could, you could still read it and learn almost everything about the router at that moment, you know. So it was still, I could still provide a lot of value to many people. That's why I published it so, so early. Uh, but it wasn't done. And, and right now it's 95% because I'm finishing the last chapter. And I just want to make a few things here and there slightly better than to be 100% and to be fully complete. But after that, I can still improve it. You know, I can still publish new versions, like adapt the book to the new versions of the framework or the router. Um, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, I was wondering, too, how you incorporated... Um feedback so for example like you say you say you had actually people doing like you know com commits on or comments on on your github repo yep um did you invite people to do that or did people yep. just find it through your book or so a few people uh because i like i'm part of the angular core team a few people were very interested in making the router successful so i asked them to look at my book to look at my pull request and make sure that they are uh, coherent, you know, that I convey my information in a succinct and, and somewhat correct way. But a few people approached me from the from my readers and said, hey, I found a few issues, you know, with your book, you know, how can I give you feedback? And I just gave them access to my repo so you can, they can comment on that, you know. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, we've, we've got a few authors who, who do that a lot. Also, somewhat surprisingly, given the power of GitHub, so a lot of people, yep. email works works quite yeah. well as well. Yeah. And they can even yeah. start little conversations. Um, uh, I was wondering, I mentioned in the introduction and, and from what I read about your self-description online that you're into keyboards and fonts. Yeah. Um, and as someone, I mean, we're in our own way picky about writing in tools and things like that. And yeah. I was wondering if there's anything that when you were using LeanPub, you, you know, would, would like to be picky about and maybe give us a suggestion um, for a way we could improve it. If I mean, we we let you use your own tools, obviously, and, and we're sort of as broad as we can be yep. on that level. Um, but if there was something in our process that you think we could improve um, or something new we could build, um, yeah. it, do you have any any suggestions? I'm, think, 
I'm thinking about it. It's hard to come up with a suggestion on the spot because I think the process was actually very good, you know? Okay. Uh, it was fairly easy to get started. You know, it, it took maybe half an hour to set it up. Super quick, you know. Uh, uh, okay. Um, it's hard to on the spot. I think it's actually pretty good already, you know? Okay. Much better than I expected because I heard so much, like, so many horrific stories about publishing, how hard it is, you know, how much pain you have to go through. And it's probably the case with traditional publishers. I don't know. Uh, but my uh, my experience with Limpop was very pleasant. Yeah, it's um, uh, not to disparage anyone, but there are just structural things about the conventional publishing process, which is still historically all sort of around print mm -hmm. um, and uh, lots of timelines and, and um, people on a team who might not necessarily seem all that necessary to people. Uh, and I guess I'm going to say it in 2016. Um, uh, and there's lots of legacy uh, in in the process. But but in, in particular, I think that people who are used to writing, who are technical and who are used to writing about technical things, you know, they don't want to have to get in a fight to get a typo changed yep. or updated. They just want to be able to, like, make the change yep. and, and get it out to people. Um, uh yeah, well, uh, I mean, thanks very much. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you another question. So this is going back, uh -huh. so loop, looping back around to the beginning of our discussion before uh -huh. before we go. Um, so as someone who's into productivity, uh, what's your opinion of Slack? I actually use Slack, and I think it's, uh, it is a good tool comparing to other tools in the market. I think Slack is a, is a great tool. I use it a lot uh, to chat with my teammates and to interact with people from different teams who use Angular. Uh, in general, I find asynchronous communication very hard to get right, you know? So I think it's obviously useful, but it has to be a part of your team's culture more than any particular tool, you know? And I think in our case, a huge part of our culture is actually being in the same room because like most of Angular Core and, you know, like 20 of us in the same room. So it's very hard to ignore that and always use Slack. Yes, when you can just turn around and chat with a person. So I think Slack can be more useful for other teams, you know? I think it's useful for the Angular team, but may not be uh, the most important tool for us, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the the thing that I get preoccupied with when I think about Slack is the fact that it doesn't have replies yet. Yep. Um, and so, you know, there can be three conversations going on yep. in the same sort of channel um, yep. ab amongst many different people. And it seems to me to quickly degrade and what people do in practice is they end up, you know, whether it is just turning around or going to the, getting a meeting yep. or like, you know, they end up having to diverge away from yep. it anyway. But of course it's so well designed and it's so yep. easy to use that, yep. that, that makes up for um, mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of disintegrating conversation issue, which I'm sure they're probably thinking hard and taking mm -hmm. their time um, to solve because uh -huh. they, they have it. Um, well, um, Thanks very much, Victor, for uh, doing this interview. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed hearing your story about, about Russia to San Francisco, you know, Vladivostok to San Francisco uh -huh. via Toronto. Um, uh -huh. And I wanted to say thank you for uh, also being a Lean Pub author. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks.